Well, when the elder team decided that it was time to take up a study of Romans, way back when, I don't know how long it's been now, quite a while, I knew that we'd come to certain parts of the book that would be hard to preach and potentially cause some controversy. That's just what happens with the book of Romans. And so we survived chapter 7. That was fun. And then we survived chapter 9. And then we got through chapter 11, all intact with unity. And this morning we arrive at the last of the really difficult chapters, chapter 13. And as most of you know, chapter 13 contains Paul's most explicit statement about a subject that we all struggle with, government. Government. And in particular, how Christians like us ought to view the men and women who rule over us and how we ought to respond to them as our rulers. And what an interesting time for this subject to come up, right? I mean, are you, are you, are you looking around? Are you seeing cable news? Are you on Twitter? What an interesting time. I think no matter what you think about him, I think we'd all agree that Donald Trump is the most unique president we have ever had. And looking back over the past 50 plus years, I've been around for a while, I can say with a fair amount of confidence that we've never had a more divided Congress or a group of less competent people in Congress that don't seem to want to get anything done. And so we can face it this morning, we can be honest, our government right now is a mess. Every day it seems that our legislators show us that they're, they're really not there to serve you and I, the citizens, like they claim to be, like they ran on, they are more likely to be out for themselves. They want to get their 30 seconds of fame on cable news or on social media. And so if you wandered through the halls of Congress today, you'd find that agreement is almost non-existent. Crossing party lines is not allowed. It's a a scenario where Wild accusations are thrown at one another like candy. Corruption seems to just be built into the the whole system. And the level of hypocrisy that our legislators demonstrate on a daily basis is mind-boggling. Other than that, we're fine. And yet we know that this is the government that God has given us. Stop and think about that for a second. This is the government that God has given us. And we know that compared to other nations and compared to other times in the world... What we have today in America is actually pretty darn good. Imagine being a Christian farmer living peacefully in colonial America in 1776, out there doing your thing in the farm, and word comes that a bunch of politicians in Philadelphia have voted to declare independence from Great Britain. You've studied what Paul says in Romans 13, so what do you do now? Do you join this revolution? Or do you remain a loyalist to the government of Great Britain? Imagine you're living in Germany in the late 1930s when Adolf Hitler embroils her nation in a world war while systematically arresting and sending Jews off to concentration camps. In fact, some of your very neighbors, friends of yours, Jews, are being taken away, never to be seen again. Then you hear about a plot to assassinate Hitler. And you're invited to come and play a role in the conspiracy But you've studied Romans 13, you know what it says, so what do you do now? Or finally, imagine you're living in Kandahar, Afghanistan. You're a a recent convert from Islam to Christianity, and word comes down from the tribal elders 
that Christian Bibles are illegal and anyone found to be in possession of one is to be executed on the spot. Based on what you know of Romans 13, do you then go out and dispose of your copy of the scriptures? Those types of scenarios make our situation look pretty simple, don't they? But this is what Christians have been dealing with throughout the ages in all kinds of different contexts for 2,000 years. And yet today, I think we'd all agree that increasingly Christians and the governing authorities here in America, both federal and state, we seem to be on a collision course towards greater conflict. And so we've begun to ask questions that 20 years ago we never thought of. Will our government begin to regulate or hinder or even oppose the practice of our faith in some way? It may not be long before we have to look at Romans 13 and, like those who've gone before us, make some really hard decisions. At the same time, we need to make sure that our attitudes are in check, that that in the process of seeing this conflict coming, that we don't become disagreeable citizens. That's not our job. We're not to be grumbling about everything. We're not to be disrespecting our leaders. We're not to be protesting every little thing. And in the process of that, hurting our testimony before a watching world. So we have a great responsibility in this. Even as we look down the road and try to think, well, what's coming? We have a great responsibility to make sure that our attitudes, our hearts are in the right place. And so Romans 13 helps us think through some important issues. When, if ever, is civil disobedience okay? What about armed rebellion against a corrupt government? Should we withhold paying our taxes as a way to protest something that our government is doing? Lots of questions. So grab your Bibles. And let's turn there. In fact, actually, let's start in Romans 12. We'll get to 13 in just a second. Let's go to Romans 12, the very end there. The reason we want to start back in chapter 12 is so that we don't get to chapter 13 and we see this whole new subject matter about the government and we say, well, how did we get here? That's the temptation, of course, to overemphasize these chapter divisions. We have a tendency to do this. You all know that, that these chapter divisions were not inspired, right? So, so chapter 12 and chapter 13 were all part of one flow of thought in the way Paul wrote his letter. So we don't want to overemphasize those chapter divisions. Actually, Paul's not talking about a, a whole new dis- disconnected subject matter at all. What he's really doing here is switching from one application of a principle to a new application. That's really what he's doing. So in chapter 12, we heard Paul instruct us about, first of all, personal relationships within the church, within the body of Christ. And then secondly, he went outside of that and started talking about how we're to deal with the world of unbelievers around us, especially those that we would identify as our persecutors or our enemies. How are we supposed to respond to people who persecute us and who come off as our enemies? So let's look at verse 17, then we'll go forward from there. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, he writes. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So real fast then. So this is so important. As much as possible from your side of things, be at peace with everyone. Be at peace with everyone. God does not want his children to be living in a constant state 
of agitation, either in the church or outside the church, in conflict with everybody. It's not what he wants. And so if someone sins against you, and it's going to happen to all of us at some time, if it hasn't happened already, it will soon. If someone sins against you, you are at a crossroads of a great decision. You have a choice to make to retaliate with a physical punch or more likely with some hurtful words, maybe a really nasty email, or to do as Paul instructs here, do not pay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. How? Well, love your enemy. Love that person who is persecuting. Have empathy towards that person that is hurting you. Serve them. Is he hungry? Give him something to eat. Is your enemy thirsty? Give him a drink. That's hard to do, right? That, that goes against everything that our flesh wants to do, but we're to be supernatural in this. We're to respond with kindness to those that hurt us. I read a beautiful story this week that really serves as a great example of this, and, and I love it when I do this. I'm just in my regular reading, and something comes up before me, and I'm like, oh, that's so perfect. I'll just read this story. It says, in the early days of missionary work in China, small Christian communities were springing up everywhere, And it was regularly the case that they were disliked by local governments. Some of the Christian men in one particular community were very cruelly treated by a a petty government official. They were beaten. They were robbed. But believing it to be their calling and having read Romans 12 and 13, they chose not to resist. Sometime later, this same minor official ran into trouble with his superiors about something else and was himself convicted and threatened with severe punishment. Okay, so here comes the, this guy's opportunity for vengeance, right? But one of the Christian men who'd been the target of this man's mistreatment not only declined to serve as a witness at his trial against him, but because of the commands in Romans 12, he actually intervened and secured the official's pardon and release. He chose not to repay evil with evil, but returned it with kindness. So the story ends. As you can imagine, that official became a fast friend of all the Christians in the village. And the mistreatment stopped and the church began to flourish. That sort of thing has happened many, many times in Christian history. Followers of Jesus not taking vengeance. And by their patience and love, pouring burning coals on the heads of their enemies. What a great example. What a great story. So one of two things is going to happen when you, when you uh, pay back a persecutor with kindness instead of vengeance. Number one, the surprising nature of your kindness will help your enemy to see Christ in you and possibly lead them to repentance. Isn't that the best result? Or he'll reject your kindness and continue on his wicked path, in which case you, having responded faithfully, can then brush the dust off your sandals and move on. And then you can leave ultimate justice and vengeance to the Lord, the only one who's really authorized to do it. Does that make sense? One of those two things are going to happen. Now, how does all this connect with chapter 13? Well, the governing authorities that God establishes on earth, they are his servants, his servants to do what? To lay out this wrath and this judgment, to get justice on this earth. So Paul's moving from that personal uh, relationship between people in the church and enemies, and he's saying, by the way, I, the Lord, have established government to assist me in this project of ultimate justice. So let's take a look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That word avenger is the same root word as vengeance from chapter 12. The government is God's avenger, the one who dishes out vengeance where it's appropriate. Now, for all the controversy, and there's a ton, that surrounds this passage, and this has gone on for centuries, when you look at it, it's actually pretty straightforward, isn't it? We just may not like the conclusions that we come to. The challenge isn't really in understanding what Paul is saying. The challenge is in taking the principles he's talking about here and then applying them in all the situations that we bump into in life and all the situations that our minds can conjure up. Well, what if this happens or what if that happens or what if my government does this? It's taking the principles and using wisdom and applying them in all those situations. So we're actually only going to cover verses 1 and 2 today because that's really, those are the foundational statements that we need to lay out. This, the outline for this is really, really simple. Again, it's not hard to understand. Number one, God has established all human governments. True? True? I, I just want, I want your affirmation so, so that later you go, I don't know if I believe this. Number two, we're to submit to those governments. True? Good. Number three, if you resist government, you're opposing God himself, and you will come under righteous judgment. True? Good. Simple outline. Should we pray and go home? No. As we dive deeper into the passage, just a couple warnings before we get started here. Romans 13 is not going to give you every answer to every possible scenario that you want this morning. Because I know some of you guys already have some things in your mind. It's not going to give you every answer that you want. It's not going to address every situation, nor is it going to speak to every situation that you can conjure up. So in order to really get a good handle on the subject, what we're going to have to do is do two things. Look at some other passages of Scripture, not isolate this, but look at some other passages, and we'd be very wise to take a look at character sketches of certain people in Scripture, godly men and women, who faced much more difficult governments than we do. Who are, who are serving in governments and living in countries where the rulers there made our president and our legislators look like pussycats. So we can look at them as well. Does that make sense? All that to say, manage your expectations over the next couple of weeks. What we're going to do, this, this, these seven verses really is the unit of thought here in Romans 13. It's probably going to take us three or four weeks to get through. Because there's so many questions that we want to answer. And we want to do it well. So... You're not going to get all the answers today, and so I'm, I'm going to beg you before we go any further to be patient, okay? So don't run up after service with my six questions about things I didn't address yet. We're going to try to get there. Is that fair? You be patient? Good. All right. First thing we want to look at here is the historical context behind Paul writing on this subject matter. 
Okay, remember, Scripture is not written in a historical vacuum. There's always a, a context behind it. And usually you can pinpoint a reason for why he took this subject on. And so the reason he did was this, tension. Tension between religionists and the Roman government that he was living under in the first century. That was, for us today, this is sort of an academic exercise. But for Paul, this was a daily problem, a daily issue that they had to deal with. And especially, imagine being in the church in the city of Rome. This was a daily issue, the tension between religion and government. Remember that the Jewish state itself is revolutionary in its nature. The reason it's under the Roman Empire, the, the, the conditions that brought, brought uh, Israel under Rome grew out of the Maccabean Revolt. And so the Jews prided themselves on their independence. So whenever Jews were in one place and the Romans were well aware of this, there was a spirit of revolution in the air. The Romans were very aware of it. Keep in mind also that Jesus himself was executed by a Roman procurator for what? For treason against the state. Okay, so the leader of this sect under the Roman Empire, their leader was crucified by the Roman state for treason. Number three, keep in mind also that by the time Paul's writing this letter, he himself had been arrested in Philippi for subversion to Roman customs. So even he is a subject of their examination. In Acts 18.2, we find a brief reference to a complete expulsion of all Jews from the city of Rome. The emperor Claudius expelled every single Jew from Rome. And then we have this incredible historical note from a Roman historian named Suetonius. He says this. This is a quote. The Jews were expelled because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of Crestus. And scholars have looked at that and said, well, that's, that's, a, that's a variant misspelling of the name Christ, Christ Christus. So right there, Suetonius is telling us that Rome was filled with constant riots because the Jews were furious at the Christians. And so he threw them all out of the city. The point is this, the Roman government had been, become very aware of this group we know as Christians, this revolutionary sect within Judaism, and they were generally viewed negatively. They were strange they were superstitious, they didn't participate in Roman life, and they kept to themselves, and they constantly were going off to these secret gatherings. And since both Jesus and his followers had already been accused of attempting to overthrow Roman rule, any civil disobedience in the city of Rome would not be looked upon favorably. And so the Christian community that Paul was writing to, writing this letter to in Rome, could not afford any unnecessary conflicts with the Roman state. So this is some of the reasons why Paul's writing this. They, they just couldn't afford to get into more problems with the Roman authorities. You can imagine the Christians in Rome having some serious questions about everything that's going on around them. They're living, again, in the capital city under the shadow of the emperor himself. So think about the questions. How should Christians in Rome think about Caesar? Right? As wicked as he was, are we supposed to obey his laws? Are we supposed to worship him? What do we think of Caesar? Keeping in mind that the whole statement, Jesus is Lord, would have been viewed as a political statement, how could a Christian live out his faith without being seen as a traitor to the empire and possibly arrested and executed? So this teaching from Paul was very important for the first century church, especially those located in an imperial city. 
And by the way, it's been that way for many Christians in many countries over the past 2,000 years. Whenever we study Romans 13, we have to keep in mind that it carries the same meaning for a Christian living in ancient Rome as a Christian living in modern-day Iran or China or Saudi Arabia. Wherever Christians face hostile governments, this passage is of primary importance. And again, it's possible that it'll carry more weight for us as the years go by as we, again, begin to ask questions like, will our children and our grandchildren have to face an overtly hostile government to our Christian convictions? That could very well be true. So this is important stuff. So let's start by looking at the second half of verse 1. The second half of verse 1. Paul says this, For there is no authority... How much authority? None. No authority except from God. And those which exist are established or instituted by God. So so Paul leaves us no room here, right? As much as we wish he'd given us a little glimmer of of a door open to something else, he gives us no exceptions here. The principle is very simple. All authority on earth is established by God And no governing authority operates independent of God. So as we might expect, this whole premise that that Paul is beginning with is built on our favorite phrase, right? God's sovereignty. It's built on God's sovereignty. God does as he pleases and nothing comes to pass that he hasn't ordained. So he is the supreme authority over everything. And in his use of that supreme authority... He has granted lesser authority to certain people to govern and rule the nations of the world. By the way, we're not talking about just the men and women at the very top of our government, but all authority, federal, state, local, the powers that be. That's what he's saying here. The powers that be, wherever they are in your life, are all established by God. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, there's some rulers I'm good with, others I'm not. I mean, I might be able to find a way to grit my teeth and submit to the current president, but not to the governor of California, right? Or, or, or the local congresswoman here from Santa Clarita or the sheriff who runs the sheriff's department here. Not that. We don't get to pick and choose. All authority, all levels of authority, God has put all of them in place. Now, I realize this, this message is a little bit easier to preach in America than it would be in China or Iran or North Korea, but it's still just as true in those countries as it is here in the West. All of those leaders and their governments have been instituted by God for his purposes. Let me say that again. In those countries where awful things are taking place, they've all been instituted by God for his purposes. Now, that's hard to come to grips with, isn't it? I, I mean, let's be honest. That is a difficult thing to grasp. It isn't hard to think of that God has established the rulers of you know, predominantly you know, Christian nations, but to think that God sovereignly put Joseph Stalin in power, or Idi Amin, or Pol Pot, or Adolf Hitler, that's, that's tough. That's a hard thing to come to grips with. But for perspective, I want you to listen to Daniel. Now, Daniel has a ton of things to say about government because he's immersed in a pagan government. Listen to how Daniel prays. Remember, he is stuck where? In Babylon, and he is serving a bloodthirsty pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Yet this is how he prays. 
Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Daniel submitted himself to this difficult truth. And he was living it far more than you and I probably ever will. He submitted himself. Later on, he declares it again. He says, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over government. And so the picture we get in scripture is that at various times, God establishes good kings, yay. And at other times, he establishes really wicked men to rule over humanity in order to accomplish certain purposes. And in the midst, we say, well, God, why are you doing that? What's going on? Well, we know from Romans 8, he's working all things for good for those who love him, right? All things. Even in the midst of of a difficult situation, imagine living under Kim Jong-un. God is still at work, working all things together for the good of those who love him by his sovereign hand. Can God not reach into North Korea and save people? Of course he can. Does all the time. Praise the Lord, right? So he's working all things together. So before we just go, you know what, Jeff, this is a bridge too far. Stalin, Hitler, you know, Pol Pot, are you kidding me? Think just about the roster of wicked rulers that God put into power in the scriptures. And not only that, the reasons that he gives in the scriptures for why he did it. How about the pharaohs? Those were not good guys. They enslaved the Hebrew people. Well, Lord, what are you doing? Well, we know what he was doing. What was he doing with the Hebrews in in slavery in Egypt? He was growing them in numbers so that they might be a great nation. He had a purpose for those pharaohs. Jeroboam. Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. He went and established the northern kingdom of Israel, and he set up false worship sites and led the people astray. And yet his rebellion is described in 1 Kings 12 as this. Get this, quote, a turn of events brought about by the Lord. Wow. Sennacherib and the wicked kings of the Neo-Assyrian Empire slaughtering people, and yet they're called God's rod of discipline, raised up for this purpose, to discipline his His people who had fallen into spiritual adultery. We're told in Isaiah 45 that the Persian king Cyrus, who's a pagan military leader, that he was God's chosen man. He's called God's anointed ruler. That eventually would come on the scene and free his people from captivity and send them back to the land. Cyrus. How about Pontius Pilate? Surely he can't be established by God, right? Wrong. Recall how Pilate said this to Jesus. He said to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority? I mean, Jesus must have, I mean, in his spirit must have laughed at that, right? I have authority to release you and I have authority to what? Crucify you. And the Lord himself affirmed that Pilate had that power. But only for one reason. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. That's where power comes from. That's where authority is. And let's not forget that as Paul was writing this letter, telling the Christians in Rome to submit to all the governing authorities, who was the emperor on the throne? It was Nero. Wicked, crazy, perverted Nero. 
Peter's even more explicit. Writing in the same time period, he says this, 1 Peter 2.17, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Amazingly, he's talking about Nero when he writes that. So with those examples in mind, straight out of scripture, it helps us understand how God would raise up a Stalin or a Hitler or a Kim Jong-un. How they could come to power under God's sovereign rule for his purposes. This is where, guys, we have to use our transformed minds. Right? Remember, remember chapter 12, verse 2? We need to transform our minds, renew them to think rightly. Not to think as we see things in the physical world, but to think as God thinks. And God does this. He raises up even wicked men, puts them into power in order to accomplish his purposes. We have to trust that he's always at work. Always at work. Doing the one thing that transcends everything else. Drawing men and women to himself so that they might be saved. That's what he does. Now, second principle. If that one was hard, this one's harder. Our submission. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Every person. How many people? Every person. Ah, man. Paul's not giving us any room out, is he? Every person is to be in subjection to or submit to these governing authorities. Drop down to verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists or rebels against authority has opposed the ordinance of God, has opposed what God has appointed. And they who have opposed or resisted will receive condemnation or judgment upon themselves. Now, again, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, the principle is right there. If we want to be on God's side of things, we'll submit ourselves to all, all levels of authority to whom he has placed over us. If we want to be on God's side of this thing and not oppose him, then we will submit to the authorities that he's put over us. And if we choose not to, if we choose to rebel against those authorities, then we will be subject to judgment, righteous judgment. We should expect that. Again, keep in mind that Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing full well that the imperial government of Rome was no friend of the Christian faith, no friend of that church in Rome, and far more hostile than we can even imagine here in America. But the principle remains, no matter what the context is, when we honor the governing authorities, we are in fact honoring God himself. Think about the next time that you want to bash the president. Or any of our legislators. or You want to personally attack any of them. You want to call them names. When we dishonor them, we're dishonoring God. Now it's interesting that Paul doesn't write here. He doesn't write every person is to obey the governing authorities. Right? He says submit. Is there a difference between obey and submit? Yeah, there is. Although most of the time when you're submitted to an authority, it comes with obedience. That's the natural process. But there is a distinction. To submit is to formally recognize your subordination under that person in that hierarchy, and it focuses on your spirit or your attitude towards those above you, okay? One that's going to lead you to honor them and respect them. To obey is to simply comply, okay? So one is related to your spirit, your attitude, how you see yourself within this hierarchy. The other one is brute compliance, To obey is to simply comply. We're going to find out that there are going to be times in the life of a Christian, listen to this now, where we can submit but not obey our leaders. Did you catch that? 
where we can submit to them but not obey them. We'll get to that in just a moment. And as we go through this, make sure you make sure you understand where is our first loyalty as believers? We are first of all citizens of what? Citizens of heaven. And our primary loyalty is to our king Jesus, right? Let's make sure we understand that. It's about his kingdom first. And so the reason that we submit to our earthly rulers is because he, our king, told us to. Okay? That's why. Be subject for the Lord's sake, Peter writes, to human institutions. Be subject to them for the Lord's sake, Peter writes. Submit out of reverence for God, not for the ruler. Right? I mean, I can't think the last time a uh, a, a, a ruler, when a ruler in America really earned my respect by the way he or she operated, but I'm called to honor and respect him or her anyway. Do it out of reverence for God. Submission to government is an expression of our submission to God. I know that's not easy because, again, it fights against the inclinations of our flesh. We don't want to do it naturally. It's also the spirit of the age that we live in. I mean, I would say, if I were to step back and look at the Christian community right now, I would say that we are moving in the opposite direction of this command. And that's not good. More and more, we are losing respect for those who govern us. And while we'd all probably agree that, they, again, they haven't earned our respect much, still, we have to be careful not to lose sight of God's command here in relation to our spirit and our attitude. To maintain a spirit of submission and honor, even when it doesn't feel easy to do. And here's the thing. There may be a reason at some point for us to disobey a certain law, but there's no excuse for a spirit of insubordination in the process of that. There isn't. If we believe that this passage is true, we have to trust that God is somehow at work for our good through Donald Trump, through Gavin Newsom, through Katie Hill, through Sheriff Jim McDonald, who I don't even know, Alex Villanueva, says the guy who works in the prison. And all the others that God has put over us. That God's working for our good through them. And if we believe that, let us maintain a spirit of humility and submission. Let us be good citizens. That's one of the interesting themes we see in the letters to the churches in the first century. Be good citizens. Live a quiet and productive life. Why? That's going to lead to more freedom. And more freedom leads to greater opportunity to share the gospel. Live quiet lives. Be good citizens. Be at peace with all men. Don't live in constant agitation. Listen, this is what the world does. Our world is so agitated at each other. Don't be that. Don't get sucked into it. Live quiet lives. Be at peace with all men. When people get hostile... Respond in kindness. We're trying to create more freedom, more opportunities to share the truth of the gospel. And we won't get that if we're angry all the time and we're punching people and we're, we're writing nasty emails and we're, we're, we're posting t- terrible things on Twitter. We're just not going to get there. Seek to do good in our communities. And by doing so, be a good testimony to the sovereignty and glory of God. Does that make sense? So, Let's talk about what you probably came here for. When do we get to disobey? It's so funny. I mean, it's just how we're wired, man. Uh, You know, you bring up the subject with anybody, they're like, okay, I get all that. Let's move on to the good stuff. When do we get to disobey? Okay. About civil disobedience. 
The hard part about addressing this issue is how absolute these statements are from Paul that don't give us much wiggle room. He just hasn't left it to us to be able to say no to our government or to rise up in opposition to bad laws or state corruption. I mean, there is so much corruption that you would spend your entire time rebelling against the government. There are so many lies and so many bad laws and so many bad policies, we would never be able to function if we protested them all. That's the hard part. So Paul seems to be saying here, as he said in chapter 12, listen, leave that to God. Leave it to him. Just as in vengeance are mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. You guys weren't built for this. Leave that to me. And that's the right heart. For the most part, we have to trust that God is going to dish out punishment and justice as he sees fit. And ultimately, he's going to right every wrong. We believe that, correct? So can we let that go? Can we leave it to him so that we can live lives of peace? That's a really big question for some of us. It's a big question for me. This will be the second week in a row where I admit to you that I don't do this very well. I mean, I'm a scrapper. I like to get in and fight and all that stuff. But I'm learning as I get older, that's not fruitful. It's not helpful for the gospel to be constantly, you know, jockeying for position with people, trying to win arguments. It just, it doesn't accomplish what God wants to accomplish through me. So I'm working on this. Okay. Having said that, there are exceptions to the rule that Paul's laid out here. And we see these things not in Romans 13, but in other parts of Scripture where men had to choose either obey God or obey men. If our government explicitly tells us to personally sin against God, we must refuse. Say it again. If our government explicitly tells us to personally sin, we must refuse. But, and this is important, this is really what we want to get at, how you do that makes all the difference. Because we can disobey and still do it with the spirit of submission. How you practice righteous civil disobedience matters. Let me give you some examples. Daniel chapter 3. You'll recall that Daniel's three friends, what were their names? Rakshak and Benny. <laughs> Daniel's three friends were commanded to what? To do what? Bow down to a golden image. Right? And they refused, and rightly so, because if they bowed down, that would have been an explicit sin against the very law of God, right? Bowing down to an idol, worshiping an idol. And after being threatened with death in a furnace, that's something that I, I hope none of us ever has to deal with. Here's what they said to the Babylonian king If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Why? Because he's supreme authority over you, knucklehead, right? Supreme authority, lesser authority. If he wants to, he'll deliver us. But even if he does not, right, acknowledging God's sovereignty, if he chooses not to, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Simple. God is sovereign. He's the supreme authority. So we're not going to do it. Thank you very much. It's been nice seeing you. Now, notice the way in which they declined to obey the king. They still demonstrate a submissive spirit in that. They didn't get all rebellious and say, Psh, I'm not going to do anything you say. I'm not, I'm, I'm now, you've lost your legitimacy, O king, for asking me to do that. I'm not going to obey a thing you say. No, it's just this one thing. I'm not going to do this. Okay, so they didn't get all arrogant about it. They didn't publicly question the wisdom of the king 
or, or, or lead a, a, like a social media revolt against him. Right? They didn't go out in public and call him a Nazi or a bigot or a racist or whatever thing is flying around today that everybody's this or everybody's that. They didn't do any of that. They maintained a submissive spirit. They simply stood on the principle that obedience would cause them to personally sin, and they did so knowing that it could cost them their very lives. This is what's interesting. They stood on it, they counted the cost, and they didn't resist any further. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve God, I'm going to disobey you, king, and you got to do what you got to do. I'm your servant. They counted the cost. They were willing to submit to the death penalty according to God's sovereignty. So that is disobedience with a submissive spirit. By the way, you'll see a similar situation in Daniel chapter 6, three chapters later. King Darius passes a law forbidding prayer, right? What does Daniel do? He refuses to sin. He goes straight to his house, gets on his knees in public and prays, right? He has the habit that he had three times a day. It was a public act of putting God before the king's decree. And for that choice, what did Daniel do? He submitted to the punishment. I got to do what I got to do. King, I understand you have to do what you have to do. You've signed this decree. Throw me in the lion's den. Didn't resist. He entrusted himself to God. And God rescued him, but God didn't have to. God's sovereign. He could have let Daniel die there. God rescued him. And in the process of him standing on his integrity, he won over the heart of King Darius, didn't he? He disobeyed because he had to, but he did it with a submissive spirit. You're probably familiar with the story of Acts 4 and 5. The Sanhedrin, this great body of Jewish elders, demands that the apostles, Peter and John, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. This is something they couldn't do, right? It'd be sin for them to stop preaching the good news that, that salvation comes through Jesus alone. That would be a sin. And so they disobeyed. But in the process of that, what was their attitude? Did they get all filled with arrogance and bravado? Did they stand up in front of the Sanhedrin and call them names and, you know, thump their chest, look at me, fight the power? <laughs> no, not at all. After they were arrested, here's what they said. Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. They didn't insult this prestigious religious body. They didn't go in there arrogantly. They didn't... They didn't condescend to them. They just, they, they, they showed honor to whom honor was due and simply said, I can't do that. Thank you very much. They disobeyed with a submissive spirit. That's important, you guys. We're gonna, there are going to be times when we have to disobey, but we don't have to fail in our submission to the authorities that God has put over us. Now, what are some of the examples that we might face today? If the government comes to you and orders you to have an abortion... You must refuse. You must. If the government passes a law forbidding the gathering of, of Christians for worship, you need to find another way to gather for worship. If the authorities try to outlaw the printing of Bibles, you should not only hold on to your own Bible, but work to distribute them everywhere you possibly can. If the government commanded you not to teach what Scripture says is sin, you need to keep teaching what the Bible says is true. And that may be the first one that we have to face, right? Hate law speech or hate speech law, right? We keep teaching it because it's sin not to. Now, where it gets tricky 
And this requires wisdom and discernment and seeking wise counsel. It gets tricky when an act of civil disobedience isn't clearly commanded by God. Or where you wouldn't be personally forced into explicit sin. I'll give you a couple of examples. Refusing to leave a protest outside a planned parenthood clinic when the cops come and say, you've got five minutes or you get arrested. What do you do? I think about what Rosa Parks did back in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama. She refused to go to the back of the bus. She was threatened with arrest. She didn't care. She humbly said no. So I'm going to come back to some of those examples. We're going to talk about some of those things explicitly as we go through this series. But I can say this much this morning for sure. As Christians, we are never called to take up arms and engage in violence against our government. We'll talk about the American Revolution at some point as well. We're not to take up arms in violence against our own government. We're not to plan the assassination of any political leader. I don't care how wicked he is. And we're not to hunt down and execute abortionists. Here's why. Do not repay evil with evil. In trying to overcome sin, do not sin. Does that make sense? That's a, that is a, a, a foundational principle from chapter 12. Make sure we know it well. So we're out of time today. I, only, I know I only touched on verses 1 and 2, and more can be said, but I want to close by asking this last question. This is an important one. In the, in the push and the pull of this tension between government and the Christian community, why do you think Paul errs on the side of submission rather than civil disobedience? Right, Because he makes all these really strong absolute statements. So he's erring on that side. This is a really important principle. Paul is far more concerned with our humility and our self-denial and our trust in Christ than he is in our civil liberties. That's an important principle. In other words, Paul risked being misunderstood on the side of submission because he saw pride as a greater danger to us than government injustice. Now, both of those things matter. Don't get me wrong in this. Civil liberties, they matter. Social justice, it matters. They're important to God and they should be important to us. But in Paul's mind, faith and humility and self-denial are vastly more important for the Christian than us being treated well by the government. And here's one of the reasons why that's true. Because being persecuted unjustly isn't going to send anyone to hell. True? In fact, when we're persecuted unjustly, it can cause the opposite. It can cause us to lean more into God. But becoming prideful and arrogant and self-absorbed, that will eventually lead to unbelief and that will send us to hell. That's why that one matters more. I hate the idea. Listen, I hate the idea of social injustice. I see it everywhere around us every day, and it drives me crazy. Persecution from the government, it hurts me to my very core. But you and I were never promised a fair fight in this world. We have to understand this. We were never promised that this was going to be easy. In fact, we were promised the opposite. If they'll go after the master, if they'll try to take him down and nail him to a cross, they'll come for you next. That's what we were promised. And they wield the power of the state. So it's serious business. Never forget that when you count the cost of being a Christ follower. I know it's easy now, but it may not be in the future. Count the cost. 
As you take up your cross to follow the one who was nailed to it, count the cost. The main issue that Paul's getting at in chapter 13 is not that we should be treated justly in this world by civil authorities. Yes, we can work towards that, but that's not his big idea. The main issue he's trying to get to is trusting in Christ and denying yourself for his glory. More to come on this in the coming weeks. We're going to get down and dirty on a whole bunch of really specific examples and try to answer the question, how do we apply these principles in all these different scenarios that we can think of? And we'll start, and you ready for this, at the beach next week, in public. It's going to be good. Let's pray.